0: Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 14, beginning verse 32, hear now the word of God. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began, to, um, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. The flower fades. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, it's it is amazing how, as we come before today, that we as human beings are so fragile and frail, and you know just. Even circumstances like getting a phone call on a Sunday morning that says, Hey, the church has no power. Matter of fact, the whole shopping center has no power. It can just sort of throw us off of our game and it can just sort of rock us. And, and yet, God, you are a God who's never shaken. You're a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the words that you have given us in the scriptures are the same. They apply to all humans, doesn't matter what culture, doesn't matter what race or, or what. It's just what social status they apply to us. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to receive your word by faith. Lord, please, would you speak through me this morning to bring glory to your name? We ask in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So one of the things that that really irks me is when preachers or teachers attribute feelings and emotions and thought to men and women in the Bible when the Bible doesn't do that. Now, it's not that people in the Bible aren't real people. And I know that our struggle... As 21st century people, is we can think of people in the Bible as not real, right? They're sort of plastic. They, you know, they don't really feel what we feel and stuff like that. And uh, so I'm not insinuating that at all. Okay, I'm just saying that we need to be careful not to go beyond what Scripture says. Now let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Okay, think about the account of Acts chapter nine, verses 23 through 25, where Paul is put in a basket and lowered down over the wall of the city of damascus so that he could escape okay now let me just give you a typical example of what a preacher might preach or a teacher might say as they're teaching this passage they may say yes the apostle paul was in that city and he was looking down the wall and as he's there that night there's just this whole flood of emotions that's going through him There's a sense of fear as he just thinks about the fact that the Jewish leaders are seeking to kill him. And they have every exit covered. There's no way of escape for him. So his heart in one way is very fearful. But there's another sense in which there's a lot of adrenaline that's flowing through him as he's sort of excited that that he may actually escape his captors. Uh, But then also, as he contemplates getting into the basket and being lowered to safety there's also a sense in which he's saddened to think that these disciples, these believers that are helping him escape, he may never see them again. And so with that, the Apostle Paul climbs into the basket. Now, couldn't you just hear a preacher say something like that? Yes. Yeah. yeah, you know. Now let me tell you how God puts it. Okay? This is what the Lord says. This is Luke's account. It says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Are you're like, well, Pastor Rick, I really like the way you said it so much better. I can so relate to that. But I'll tell you what. This is a danger, brothers and sisters, that we by wanting to somehow relate to people in the bible in a way that the bible doesn't convey can be adding to god's word or we can be taking away from god's word and saying something that it does not say and that should cause us great pause because god warns us against that now today i want us to look at this account of jesus in the garden of gethsemane and it's one of the most solemn scenes in the entire bible and, and the intensity of what Jesus experiences here is so consuming that Luke, a physician, records that when Jesus prayed, uh, Jesus' sweat was like drops of blood. And, and at the end of Luke's encounter, he says, and I just want to read from Luke two forty three. he says, And there appeared to him, that is to Jesus, an angel from heaven strengthening him. That's how much Jesus was in agony. Now, can you imagine the intensity of suffering that that angel witnessed as he ministered to Jesus? Now, I I say all that because of this. I want you to see that sometimes we look at scriptures and we want to add to the scriptures some element of emotion or feeling or thoughts that are not there. So that we can somehow relate to that. But I would say that equally sometimes there's passages like this at Mark that we're looking at today where we might almost go the opposite way and be sort of flippant about the things that are revealed. Like Jesus suffered. Yeah, I know, yeah, he suffered. I know that. But we say that almost like it was no big deal. Almost like, yeah, well, he had a bad day, but he got through it. You know, it, it, it may come across even as that but today i want us to look at three elements in jesus's agony in the garden of gethsemane okay three elements in jesus's agony in the garden of gethsemane first of all was jesus's feelings okay in verses 32 through 36 we see first of all his the the mental condition his his inner attitude to what he was experiencing you know i i said it's it's really wrong For us to talk about the feelings and emotions and thoughts of someone uh, when the bible doesn't describe it but there are times when the bible does describe what is going on and we need to to look at those things look at verse 32 and they went to a place called gethsemane that was a garden area by the way just uh, outside of jerusalem across the Kidron valley and and he said to his disciples sit here while i pray and then he took peter james and john and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Greatly distressed and troubled. Not just a little distressed, not just a little troubled, but greatly. And, and Jesus, you know, takes his disciples, we see here, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he tells most of them, you guys just sit outside the garden. I'm going to go pray. Peter, James, John, I want you guys to come with me. And, and he takes them with him into the garden. And it says that he became deeply distressed and troubled in front of these three disciples. But it wasn't just that they could like look at him and see this. Verse 34, it says, And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Now, the language that's used in these verses is very strong. It may not be quite as apparent in the English, but in the Greek it conveys the idea of a man who is far away from home and feels abandoned, not not just homesick, not just I feel a little lonely, I feel a little out of place, but someone who is totally desolate, who's longing for a sense of companionship um, and finding none. It's it's in a situation where someone finds themselves utterly alone. Now we might feel lonely, okay, but I don't know many of us, if any of us in this room, who are truly lonely who have no one there for them. And yet that's where Jesus was. You know, it's interesting that when we face a crisis, we want the moral support of others, do we not? And and Jesus was no different. He leaves all the other disciples behind, and he took with him those disciples that were closest to him. Those disciples that he took to places where he never took his other disciples. For example, these three went with him to Jairus's home, when he healed their little girl, who was 12 years old. These three disciples went with Jesus when he went to the Mount of Transfiguration, and they beheld him in all his glory, and they were overcome. But here, Mark's language is extremely, almost depressing. It's like he's trying to paint a picture. Like I said, the the idea of a man who's far away from home cut off From everything that's familiar in the deepest conceivable agony of the soul. The Puritans used to talk about the dark night of the soul. Those times in our lives where we just feel like we pray to God and he is not there. It's it's clear that Jesus' whole being was profoundly shaken as he began to feel the weight of his coming suffering. As the shadow of the cross begins to penetrate his soul. We see our Lord Jesus Christ shrinking back in holy horror from embracing this hour. Now, that may be a a stronger words than what you think about when you think of this passage. But that's exactly what is going on. The son of man, the son of God made man needed the encouragement and support of heaven as he faced this hour. The father knew he needed an angel to come and to minister to him. Now, I love what Sinclair Ferguson said. He said, had he not done so, in other words, had he not shrunken back in this moment, we could never have believed Jesus to be fully as well as truly human. We may have just thought, oh, well, he's God. You know, he can get through it, no problem. But we see here his humanity as he is rustling in this moment. You see, for the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a moment of unbelievable crisis. And, and the cost of obedience to his father for a moment may have seemed almost too much for him to bear. Um, and, I, and I want us to, to think about those times when when we are confronted with temptation. Okay, There are times when we sin and we just sin. We just like we blurt out a word, a harsh word without even thinking about it. But are there not those times in our lives where we are tempted and there is a clear temptation in front of us where Satan is saying, come this way. And the Lord is like, no, turn to me, trust in me. And we're like standing there in in our minds thinking, which way do I want to go? It is in those times, those battles, those struggles of our soul where, where we're wondering, do I Choose to obey God and to look to Him to strength, or do I give in to this temptation? And and just think of those times. Maybe you've had times of intense and fierce battle in your soul. Now, imagine that battle, if you would, only infinitely greater. And that's what Jesus Christ was experiencing. Now, one of the things I think that's that's interesting in our text, in verse 34 is, and it's not just here in Mark's account, but really in all the gospel writers, their accounts, is is that none of them attempt to sort of gloss over this agony of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no attempt to portray Jesus as some superman or some heroic figure. Not at all. They're, they're sort of letting you see it for what it is. The hour has come, and for Jesus, it confronts him with an unbelievable crisis. So we need to make... No mistake of the seriousness of the situation. You know, Jesus, the Messiah, was always the one that was so confident, right? You look at his ministry. It just oozes that he is in control of everything that he encounters. And yet here he is inwardly troubled and distressed. It says in verse 34, he was very sorrowful. Not just sorrowful, but very sorrowful. Some translations might say grief, so sorrow or grief, but both are the same. It's an emotion of great sadness, and Jesus was sad. Now, it's hard for us to think of him that way, but the Bible tells us that he was sorrowful to the point of death. Now, what was it that, that was so um, overwhelming for Christ? Was it the cross that was before him? You know, What, what is it that's causing such agony? What is it that was so intense that it caused, as Luke said, for him to sweat drops of blood on the ground? Well, I'm here to tell you, it was not his upcoming crucifixion or his death. Um, And you may say, what? Um, At least it wasn't just death itself. Let me put it that way. Look at verse 36. It actually tells us what it is that he was responding to. It says, and he said, Abba, Father... All these things are possible for you. Remove what from me? This cup. this cup. Now what is the cup that will cause Jesus such consternation? Well there's a, a number of different passages that we could look at. We could go to the Psalms or other places, but if we could, just turn to Isaiah chapter 51, Isaiah 51:17. 51, Listen to these words. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You, have, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. So what was it that caused Jesus' soul such agony? It was the expectation of drinking the cup of God's wrath. You see, the cup symbolizes the holy Anger and wrath of God against human sin, and Jesus was about to be given that cup by His Father. Now, this is the same Father who said back in Matthew 3:17, "This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased." So, if we're to understand Jesus' frame of mind and the emotional disturbance of our Lord, we need to understand the conflict that He's going through. Here He is; Jesus is being given this cup. Of, of, of wrath to drink, that he will drink upon the cross. And it is that cup of wrath against human sin. And it's being given to him by the Father whom he loves. And so here is Jesus wanting to do nothing more than to please his Father because he loves him. And yet this is such an awful cup to have to drink. You know, it's, it's interesting that if you look at the contrast between Jesus' death... And the death of martyrs who have died for their faith, it's it's very different. Often a Christian martyr dies and he's willing to face death for the cause of Christ. But our Lord shrinks back because he faces not just death, but he faces the wrath of the Father. No man uh, feared death as much as the man Jesus, but no man uh, had to face the wages of sin for humanity. He is facing the weight of God's holy wrath for human sin upon his holy head. And that's really what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah 53, 6. It's a passage that's familiar to a lot of us. Many of you probably have memorized it. It starts out this way. Um, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Right? We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, The covenant-keeping God has laid on him upon the Messiah the iniquity of us all. He has put our sin upon him, and therefore he must bear the wrath of all of our sin. You know, I I think the thing that's that's interesting to, to think of here is the fact that Jesus knew exactly what was coming. If, 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 if you want, turn back to Mark chapter 10, just a couple of chapters back, 10, 38. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able uh, to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You see, Jesus knew that this cup was coming. He knew that he was... Having to face this, he knew that it was his mission in life. You know, I think think of that and then I think about how often we say things like, you know, I just wish I knew what, what God had coming, then I think I could handle it a little bit easier. Really? How arrogant do we think we are? I mean, how many times do the circumstances of our lives just sort of take us off guard and we're just sort of decimated by those so we think that if I knew what was coming I would handle it so much better I would suggest to you brothers and sisters that's not the case if we really knew what was coming down the pike and what the Lord was going to do in our lives and some things we would rejoice greatly but other things we would probably be tempted to worry and to fear almost beyond our comprehension and I want you to know it is God's grace that he does not tell us what's going to happen in the future. It is God's grace instead that he says to you, my child, take today as its own. Just take today. That's all you need to have before you. I'll handle the rest. Just rest in me. And it's wonderful grace. Well, anyway, Jesus was about to be exposed to the one thing in life he really feared. Not not the cruel death on the cross, because he was going to rise again, but the indescribable experience of feeling himself to be God-forsaken. Uh, as one commentator put, he said, he felt he could not live, indeed, that life was not worth living without the consciousness of his Father's love for him. Could you imagine that? Jesus was in such fellowship with the Father that he could not imagine uh, that being interrupted of, of that consciousness of the Father's love. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, as I was preparing this sermon and I was thinking of the love of the Son for the Father, I, I have to say that I am ashamed for my love for the Father. You know, I, I'm one of those people that the slightest distraction can keep me from having my quiet times in the morning. I can get a phone call and next thing I know I'm into my day. Or I think of something on my to-do list, and I think, well, I'll just knock this first thing off, and next thing I know, the day's almost over, and I have spent no time with the Lord. As a matter of fact, I spent too much of my day trying to figure out how I'm going to get things done, not even conscious of God. And yet here is the Son, who is in such fellowship with the Father that as he thinks about the fact that God would, you know, forsake him and that He would pour His wrath out upon him, it causes him him great consternation. And so Jesus wrestles with the agony of being separated by the Father as he endures God's wrath for our sins. You know, brothers and sisters, the fact that Jesus entered that darkness and experienced such grief and sorrow should be the source of all comfort for us here today. It it assures us that he understands your darkest hours. Those dark nights of the soul where you have woken up in the middle of the night and you have prayed, Oh God, help me. And there's nothing. There's times when you think, Lord, where are you? I'm going through this all alone and you're struggling and you're wrestling. Now, maybe you've not experienced that. Yet, at least. But do you struggle with physical illness? If you do, you're not alone. Jesus is pleading your cause for you. Is there a particular sin that that seems to master you and you just fall into that sin again and again and you just say, Lord, never again. I can't do this to you again. And yet you do. Well, I want you to know you're not alone in that battle. Jesus, plead your cause to the Father. Or, or do you do you have a wayward child? Maybe you have a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter, or or maybe your kids aren't old enough; they still live in your home, you know, so they haven't left and and fallen away from the faith. But you look at the hearts of your kids, and you can see in some of your kids a real love for Jesus, but in other ones of your kids, you don't see that. And that concerns you greatly. You're not alone in your heartache. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and He intercedes on your behalf. So Christian, you're not alone. Jesus says, Christian, I have been where you are and in the depths you could have never imagined and I know your body and I know your struggles and I am there. But but more than that, Jesus has done more than that. He more than just understands you. It means that he has drawn the sting from your darkest hour. He he has taken that which is almost unbearable and he has taken that away because he entered into our God-forsaken condition so that we might share his God-accepted relationship to the Father. Now, let me let me share let me explain to you what that means by sharing with you from Hebrews chapter four, verse sixteen. Hebrews four sixteen. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now we've all read that verse many times, and maybe we've even relied upon that verse. But do you know what that's saying? That is saying that Jesus in his darkest hour, uh, in his agony, was God forsaken. So that you and I, in our darkest hour, would never be forsaken. As a matter of fact, in our darkest hour, we have the promise that we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may not just know about mercy, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Jesus was God-forsaken so that we might always be God-accepted. And you may never have understood that. This brings us to our second point. The second element in Christ's agony is His submission to the Father. Jesus' submission. He had his feelings and now his submission. Our Lord Jesus' soul was overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. He faced isolation as the wrath of God is is poured out on him. Cutting off fellowship with the Father and the Son. And yet, in the midst of that agony, he prays, remove this cup from me. That makes sense. You know, it's just almost too much to bear. But then see what he goes on to say. Yet not what I will but what you will that's submission not what I will but what you will now one thing just sort of as as a side note Jesus prayed that the cup that the father might give it to him might be taken away that sort of teaches us that it's not necessarily wrong to ask for something which God doesn't intend to do uh, as long as your heart is submissive to what it is that God does want to do It may be you're praying for a friend to be healed. And the Lord said, yeah, I want to heal them, but I want to take them home to glory. That's how I'm going to heal them. You know, so we prayed for something that wasn't really the will of the Father. That's okay. As long as when he answers it the way he wants to answer it, our wills are submissive to that, whatever it may be. You see, Jesus in his agony resolves to be obedient to death, even the sin-bearing curse-enduring death on the cross. Now, I want you to understand that there is nothing effortless in the obedience of Jesus to the Father. This is where we can think Jesus wasn't real. What he went through isn't what I experienced. It, it, isn't, it isn't as deep. It doesn't hurt as much. It wasn't as much of a struggle. We could think of Jesus as a plastic Jesus that's fake. But that's not true. His obedience was really real. There is nothing easy about what Jesus did. Jesus' obe- obedience to the Father is costly. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews 5, verse 8, put it this way. They said, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In other words, with each new trial, Jesus learned in practice and in pain what it means to obey the Father. And and in Christ, there's this unbeatable determination that no matter what, for for Jesus to obey the Father, um, it, it, He would do that. It didn't matter what it cost Him. It didn't matter what, what God wanted. Now, how could He do that? How could He do that? Well, turn to Isaiah 50, if you would, Isaiah 50. And it says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Him who walks... In darkness. Now, can you imagine uh, having no light that you're walking in total darkness? And I think, honestly, as much as we go through difficult times in our life and those things, you know, maybe there's times and periods of your life where you're going through such difficulty, you can't sleep, you struggle to eat, um, you, you struggle with depression. There's all these things that are, you know, getting on top of you and you're wrestling with. But I would suggest to you, that is bleak and as dark as those hours are, that you are never in total darkness. There is always some kind of light. It may be a pinpoint of light in your life. It may be that, that someone else loves you and cares for you, and they said that they're they're with you to walk through this with you. It could be that it is the promises of God that He has given to you. You may have neglected those promises. But that light is there. It may just seem like a pinpoint to you because you can hardly remember those promises, but it is there. But for Jesus, He had no light. So what is He to do when He has no light? Well, we'll look back at Isaiah 50. Let me read the whole verse now. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness... Okay, this is what we're to do in those times when we are walking in darkness, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. There's a sense in which we're called to put our full weight upon God. And that's what Jesus is doing in the garden. That All the light has gone off and He is trusting in the name of the Lord his God, and relying upon him. And although he will soon be hanging on the cross and incur the wrath of God, in spite of that, he says, Father, I will trust you even unto death. We know that the Father is conforming all who are his children. He's making us in the image of Jesus. And he takes us sometimes through very difficult things that we might know what that means to be like Christ but we know that in those times we are weak and we are are prone to, to falter. But the one who drank the cup to the bottom, to the dregs, is the one who prays on our behalf as we encounter every temptation and trial. And, and that, that brings us to our third point, and that is Jesus' disappointment. So his agony was his feelings... It was his submission and now his disappointment. And namely, his tremendous sense of disappointment in his disciples. Uh, Verse 27, Jesus had already prophesied that they would all desert him. Okay, But we must be careful not to think that just because Jesus knew ahead of time about their betrayal and their weakness, uh, that it did not still hit him very keenly. That it did not cut to the bone when it actually happened. I mean, as we read the text, and as, especially as we get into the passages that are coming up ahead of us, and we see Jesus' interaction with Peter and others, we see there that sense of hurt. Well, Jesus had asked his close, three closest disciples to not only come with him, but in verses 34 and 38, Jesus asked them to watch and to pray. Watch and pray. Not only... Because in that time, he needed that time of prayer. But also he knew that they would find themselves exposed to temptation and they would be powerless to do anything about it. So he calls them in the face of their future temptation to watch and to pray. But what happened? Well, what happened is, is oftentimes what happens with us. They failed miserably. They, they, they were the same men, you know, and I think it's interesting when you think about all the things they've said up until this time, you know, they said, Jesus, I would rather die than deny you. Right. In verse thirty one. Uh, turn back to Mark chapter 10. Let me read that passage again. I, I read just an excerpt earlier, but let me read it in more in its fullness. Mark ten thirty-seven. It says, and they, and the they that's here is James and John. So it's two of the three inner circle guys, right? These are the men who are closest to Jesus. And they, James and John, said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They don't ask for much, do they? Anyway, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Sort of clueless, right? And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And yet, here both of those men lie at Jesus' feet, asleep. Sort of ironic, didn't it? Three times Jesus agonizes over what lies before him. And three times he returns to his disciples only to find them asleep. So Jesus tells the disciples to watch and pray unless they fall into temptation in verse 38. Now, no one can avoid temptation, but by God's grace, we can avoid falling into temptation by watching and by praying. Now, that word watch is a very specific word. Okay, It's, it's important. It's, it's the idea, obviously, of staying awake. That's, that's part of it. But it's also the idea of being on guard, on being on watch. It's, it's the idea of a night watchman who is alert. He's aware of his surroundings. He knows what's going on. He's guarding. He's prepared and ready against anything that, that may come. And that's why the actions of the disciples' sin of falling asleep stands out so much. The, the idea of watching goes hand in hand with prayer. We're not simply brothers and sisters to pray. We are to watch and to pray. We are to be alert. Our minds are to be engaged as we seek to understand the times in which we live. The whole reason I'm so excited about this Wednesday night study Is because Carl Truman does a phenomenal job of laying out before us exactly what's going on in our culture. And if you want to watch and pray, you need to be at that study. And I'm not just trying to get you to come to my house for a Bible study. Okay, it's not even a Bible study, it's just a study on culture. But I I want you to be there because I want you to be a people who watch and pray. We need to understand the strategies and the plans of the evil one. We, we are not to be ignorant of the devices of Satan. Watch and pray. Because do you know what prayer is? It is dependence upon God. It, it is recognition that apart from God, we can do nothing. And, and do you notice that as Jesus is, is teaching them, and that's he really is teaching his disciples in this passage, he's modeling before them their very eyes, how you are what you are to do when you encounter these difficult times you know i mean how did jesus respond to all this emotion that he felt in the garden did he withdraw and separate himself from the world D- did he slump into depression did he spew angry words at god and everybody else that was around him and used them as It's a whipping post. Jesus didn't do any of that. Instead, he prayed. Jesus cast himself upon his own father and he prays for the events of the crucifixion. Now notice what he says in verse 38. And I think we can all relate to this. We could make this our life verse, maybe. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right? Can anybody else relate to that? We struggle with that. How acutely aware we all need to be of how desperately weak we are, even at our best. And I know there are some, and there are probably some in this room, who you work very hard to make your life look good. And you want no one else to see your insecurities and your weaknesses, and so you're doing everything you can to cover that up. But you need to understand that even at your best, you are weak And in need of him, you and I are far more vulnerable to Satan's temptations than we ever realize you are weaker than you ever imagined yourself to be. So the appropriate attitude as one who is so weak is one of humility and dependence upon God. Recognize your weakness. Admit that that is there moment by moment and seek to be dependent upon the grace of God. Don't try to cover up and make your life look a certain way. Instead, turn to him. Be honest in your weakness, but look to him for strength. And he is there. As we come to the conclusion of this passage, we see that the hour had come. That the time that God had ordained since before the foundation of the world, the Son of God, who would one day... Triumph over all will fall into the hands of sinners. And, and, of course, this can only be explained by the sovereignty of God and the submission of the Son. Because Jesus Christ is Lord and, and men can do nothing to him but only what God ordains. And so Jesus says in verse 42, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. That causes him no anxiety, it, it appears from the text at least. You know, he understands that, that Judas is coming with the soldiers. Well, as we look at this passage today, we need to realize that all of history revolves around two gardens, the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. And just as sin and rebellion in one of the gardens brings death to our world, so submission to God in the other garden reverses that pattern of rebellion and sin and death. And instead Christ, through his death and what he accomplished on the cross, inaugurates another pattern in our lives, ones that we could never imagine could be the patterns of obedience and forgiveness and life. Amen. Not life as this world defines it, but life. You know, I don't know if you think about this, but this is like the, the hour and a half of your whole week in which you see life the most clearly. Did you know that? Because out there in the world, the world is constantly bombarding you with, this is the way life is. This is what reality is. But you know, it's it's what, like, uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, was it the silver chair? Where uh, the young king is strapped in the chair and they think that he's a madman. But it's really in that time that he sees clearly Who He is and what's going on around Him. And that's what happens in church. When we come and we focus upon the Word of God and we see things as it is. You see, it's in this other garden that God's second Adam, says, Lord, not my will, but Thy will. And He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And that's where our hope of salvation lies, right? Doesn't it? It lies only in the one who was obedient unto death, who bore the wrath that would have consumed us all for eternity, and Jesus bore it for his people. So this morning, as as we close, I think it's a very valid question to ask. Does God really care about me? Does God even listen to me? Especially if you have been crying out to him and you felt like you have not heard any response. Does God care that I'm carrying this burden? Does God care? Christian, God cares. God cares. And we see that in this passage. He, he not only knows your temptations and your trials firsthand, because... He, would, he, was, uh, he not only was human, but He is human. And He sits at the right hand of the Father. And He intercedes on our behalf. Amen? Let's uh, bow our heads and just have a time of silence. Just a time between you and the Lord for you to, to pray to Him, to respond appropriately to the word that you received this morning. Let's bow at this time. omnipotent God. All-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God. You know us. You You know our frame. You know our weakness. You know our struggles. You know that as we go through the things of this world that you have taken us through, God, we struggle in our faith at times. But we pray this morning, Lord, that you would encourage your people from your word today. Lord, that they would know that they are not alone. Oh, God, I pray for all of us, because I know that all of us in one way or another are going through challenging times. And I just pray that you would turn our focus to you, that we could rest in you, Knowing that you care for us. and Lord, may our hearts even be able to rejoice where maybe when we walked in this room we felt the burden so heavy that now we know we don't carry that alone. matter of fact, we don't even carry it. You tell us to cast that burden upon you because you care for us. So help us to do that, Lord, and to trust you. Father, I also pray for those that have felt like they—they're in control of their own destiny. They can live their life. They're doing just fine. Oh God, but there may be those that you're speaking to today that they're realizing they're not. Matter of fact, they may be realizing that they're not even Christians. And I just pray, oh God, that. You would humble them to come before you and to give their life to you. To acknowledge their sin and repent, turn away from that sin and turn to you knowing that you took it all. They could never pay for their sins, but you did. And and you're calling them to trust you this morning. Oh God, we thank you that you were so good. Lord, may we leave this place even with the burdens and the struggles that we have, may we leave this place as a people who leave rejoicing, knowing that their God is a great God and He is a God who cares. We thank You. We pray all these things in Your name. Amen. Amen.